from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded Thursday, August the 2nd, 2018. This is episode number 65, Death March with Cocktails. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I am your host, Jason Snell, as always, and I'm joined by two wonderful guests from The Hollywood Reporter. We're going to pick her brain about streaming and things like that. Welcome back, Natalie Jarvie. Hello. Hi. And uh, Cicero Holmes is also here from the Spawn on Me podcast and many other things. Hello, Cicero. Hello. Greetings and salutations, everyone. And Stephen Hackett is back. He put the show together last week, but then he went on, like on vacation or something strange. I don't know what happened, but yeah, you're back. I'm, Hi. Yeah, I'm back. Hi. Yeah, it's good. We're, it's all, good. we're all together. It's good. It, that's what podcasts do is they bring people together to talk while recording themselves. Strange. Anyway, uh, here we go. Let's get down to it. The most interesting stories of the week as picked by me and Stephen. Uh, and he is actually here, which means that's great. I can occasionally just throw him a random question and see if he's still paying attention. Anyway, topic number one, he usually is, American tech companies and their relationships with China. This is a big story that broke yesterday about Google, but it's been an overarching kind of storyline for the last few years. China is a huge market, both for hardware and software, uh, but dealing with the Chinese government can be incredibly complicated. They can control portions of their economy. They want to control the flow of information in their economy. Uh, things like tariffs and trade wars and saber rattling by uh, various governments only make things more difficult. Google famous kind of opted out of dealing with China because they said that they wanted information to be free and China uh, was insisting on a, a heavily censored internet. Um, but reports that came out on Wednesday suggest that Google is actually working on an Android search app specifically for use in China, which would meet government censorship rules. And according to sources and leaked internal Google paperwork, they've been working on this with a small team that hasn't let anybody else in the company know what they're doing. It's been sort of a secret team codenamed Dragonfly for the last year. It's been about a decade since Google kind of left China. And uh, China has a lot of things that you would expect to find in search results that aren't allowed, like political opponents, free speech, sexual topics, news, academic studies, aspects of Chinese history, and a whole lot more. And this app supposedly will follow all those rules. So um, I I know this is just kind of big picture stuff, but um, as we talk about like Apple's results for this week, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later, but Apple has said, and Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, has said for a while now that he thinks China is going to be a huge market for Apple and that they want to be a participant in it. And this seems to be a real push and pull, which is like there's market opportunity and there's being a participant in the conversation about uh, about a, a government, but also it is a government that suppresses free speech and it's, a, it's an authoritarian and totalitarian government running that country. And are you collaborating with that government when you do things like make a censored search app? Cicero, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, how, how American, especially tech companies, handle China? 
Well, you, you know, the, the funny thing is that I think my, my feelings on this are, um, uh, would be quote unquote less than progressive because, uh, of, of course, if I'm, if I'm a CEO of a corporation and I'm beholden to, uh, stockholders, shareholders, and, and I have to, uh, especially if I'm Google and I'm, and I feel like my contemporaries are, um, both Amazon and Microsoft and more specifically Apple, uh, I am going to do my best to try and increase my revenue the best way that I possibly can. And that is uh, moving into a market and, you know, figuring out a way to work within a market that is double the size of the entire population of the United States. Um, where, or, or, or not even is almost triple the size, but, but the internet usage. The, I think the, the, the key stat that I hear is that there is a middle class emerging in China that's the size of the entire United States population. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, 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 uh, internet users, at least mobile internet users, uh, is estimated to be around 775 million people in China. So, uh, yeah, like, let's try and get some of that money. And if that means that we have to work with the Chinese government in order to do that, uh, we're going to have to do that because Apple is also, as we, you know, we'll probably discuss, spoiler alert, we'll probably discuss a little bit later. Uh, Apple is is also going to be interested in doing that as they try to approach a evaluation of one trillion dollars. My pinky is right by the side of my mouth as I say that. Um, so y- you want to make sure that, that you do as much as you possibly can. And, and to be honest, at least from my perspective, it's, it's difficult for you to, to look at a company and say that the company has a moral responsibility to object to a country's decision on how they treat their people, how they censor their people. And I know that Google flip-flopped on, on that over, over the past decade or so. But, you know, what's more important? Getting into the political space or continuing your business and continuing to make your business uh, more successful and broadening its reach? Mm. Natalie, what do you think about how uh, American companies should engage with China? Yeah, I mean, I agree a lot with Cicero. You know, if you look at Facebook, which recently reported earnings that were a little bit disappointing, you know, their their health as a company is really tied to their monthly active users. And if you've got access or, or can find a way to access this huge population of people, you're going to want to take advantage of that. And so to me, it feels like, you know, these companies moving into China is inevitable. Now they have to be careful about how they go about it. And I think there are concerns there about, you know, censoring content. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're going to do whatever they need to do, uh, to, to access this, this huge population of people that, that will be incredibly valuable for their businesses. Yeah. I think this is the, Cicero did, he did say it like, if you're a CEO, I think that's the key. It's like your job is to make your company make money. And I I think that that Tim Cook's approach here is interesting in that when he's asked about this, about Apple's engagement with it, he said, you know, we think that there's more success in engaging and being in the country and having a conversation with them than, than walking away. Now, 
it also he also thinks it could be their biggest market. And uh, is it the job of a, a CEO of a company to turn their back on a huge market? But like also, if there's human rights abuse, if there's a loss of free speech, are you collaborating with a government that is oppressing its own people? That is the I mean, that's the conundrum of China in general is it's a huge economic power, but it does a lot of things that we as Americans especially think are not uh, fair play for governments to do in and if you're an information-based company like Google, it's especially difficult because then you are you have to be kind of complicit in their in their censorship. But then again, all that money, all those people are kind of gleaming there behind the the scenes, and it, that it's not it's not a decision that I would like to have to make as the CEO of a company. I guess that's why they get paid so well. Uh, Stephen, you have any thoughts about this? Like like you know how how these companies are trying to make this balancing act between the opportunities in China and the restrictions of the government? I mean, I think I'm in line with what you guys are saying. Like as a personal individual, I would feel you know I would like to say I would walk away from that sort of thing because what these governments do is terrible. But from the perspective of CEO of a publicly traded company that value is based on growth, I see why they're doing what they're doing. Um, I, I do think it'll be interesting to see if they do it, how they explain that, especially sort of to an American audience. Uh, you know, Google and these other companies have often stood up to China uh, in some cases, and then while also making deals kind of with the other hand. And I think that there's going to be a call from some type of consumers. And, and maybe me, I think it's kind of how I feel a little bit too is like it's a little bit a little bit hypocritical to to do business with a company like this but then go on to an interview as a CEO and condemn governments in the world doing mm-hmm. other terrible things like it's it's clearly sticky and I understand why they would do it as a CEO but I'm not sure that I could do it as an individual but I'm not a CEO of Google or Facebook, so I guess I'm in the clear. <laughs> well, I mean, so the the funny thing is that we, you know, we talk about this because it is so very, very in your face uh, when you look at, you know, countries like China, um, even, even uh, you know, we can talk about Saudi Arabia and some of the, the objectionable things that they do uh, to, to their own citizens. But uh, we can, we can stay right here at home and look at some American companies um Wells Fargo comes to mind mm. that where where they were clearly doing things to their own you know to us to Americans that were uh morally repugnant um but that not only are they still in business people are you know still going back and 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 banking especially if you're in California there's like two banks Wells Fargo happens to be uh one of them and like it, you know, people are still banking with them, even after all of the crazy things that they've done. And and it comes, you know, we, we just heard a new story a, a few weeks ago that they were doing even more stuff. And and like so these are things that happen um, and you you will always be able to find there will always be something that a company is doing or a relationship that a, a that a company is exploiting that you may have a moral objection to but you know the, the at the at the end of the day their bottom line is their bottom line so they're going to do what they have to do 
I do think it'll be really interesting to see how they message any uh, kind of censorship uh, to people in the United States, especially in light of of what what these big tech companies are dealing with right now around, you know, fake news and misinformation and, and, you know, how do they as platforms, you know, clean some of this bad content up while also remaining, you know, kind of neutral and, you know, not getting into this, are you a media company question? And when you start censoring content, that that's, that's going to be an issue that's going to be raised. Uh, and it'll be really fascinating to watch kind of how they justify that to American audiences and, and how they kind of talk through those decisions that they're making, if they do. I, I think there there is a silver lining in all of this. Um, and, and the silver lining is, is this, the fact that we're, that the fact that, that it looks like, I think it is inevitable that, uh, uh, a social media company such as Facebook will make it into China, that Google search engines will make it into China. And I think that if we, if we look back 30 years, um, I would say that Michael Jackson had as much to do with the beginning of Perestroika and the, um, the, the, the destruction of, of the, the Cold War, the cessation of the Cold War and the destruction of the Berlin Wall as the Reagan administration and the Gorbachev administrations had, uh, with that. It was the people and their, um, appetite for all things Western culture that were, you know, essentially outlawed in 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 the soviet union um but they were still finding ways to get that stuff uh in the entire eastern bloc that was part of the black market and it was that appetite for that and this kind of um silent rebellion with from the people that uh started to turn uh sway the government into being embracing some more uh Western ideals and, and capitalist ideals. And I think the same thing could possibly happen in China. Um, you know, the, the government, while savvy about their censorship, isn't savvy enough to stop the, the train of information. Even, you know, the, the things that are blatantly censored, there will be ways around that stuff. And as long as people have access to, to the World Wide Web, uh, they will have access to getting more information. And as they receive information, I think things will start to change in, in their government as well. Cicero, you're going to make an excellent tech CEO. Um, <laughs> that's very, I mean, that's, I think, in a little less specific terms because nobody wants to make the government of China uncomfortable. That is what somebody like Tim Cook likes to say about this, which is, I think, engaging them and being a part of the conversation and being in the market is a thing that is positive. Um, but it, it is, it is difficult because you've got your employees who believe very much some of them that they should not be working to enable the government in China from doing what it's doing. And at the same time, you've got your, you want to build your business and you want to take a long view. And it's, I mean, there are no easy answers here. So it's an interesting topic. We'll keep watching it because it's not going, you know, China's not going anywhere. It's, uh, it's going to continue. And then we throw in the, the tariffs and things like that and, and trade wars. And there's all sorts of other stuff too. Um, Tim Cook said something uh, before we move on, we will talk more about Apple um, in a bit, but but um, while they were giving their results, one of the things that he said that I thought was interesting was his belief that um, 
America and China can only succeed together, and that when America and China succeed, the the world succeeds. So he has this very very strong belief that the that you know the U.S. U.S. and uh, and Chinese economies and markets they are so tightly inter uh, intermingled at this point that um, you know trade war hurts both sides and that uh, keeping openness and trade between these countries is vitally important. It's an interesting, you know, kind of broader perspective of just like uh, we're connected and everybody wants to win instead of having everybody lose. If you're going to choose an outcome, maybe that's the right one. More to talk about in a minute. We're going to talk about some streaming services. So we've got one of the experts here from The Hollywood Reporter to talk about it. But before we do that, I want to tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you in part by Pingdom. If your website was down right now, now, if visitors couldn't access your content, couldn't click that all-important buy now button, how would you know? You might not know until you got an email or a tweet or a phone call or a text message from somebody. Why can't I buy this product on your site? Or maybe they won't say anything. They'll just abandon you and go to your competitors. This is why you need Pingdom. They'll give you the peace of mind you need. You'll know your site is working perfectly because Pingdom will let you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you. They're dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable. If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website is a breeze. They use more than 70 different global test servers that simulate visits to your site. They're checking its availability as often as every minute. So start monitoring your site today. All Pingdom needs is the URL, and they will take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now and get a 14-day free trial. No credit card required and when you sign up use this code download at checkout and you'll get 30 percent off your first invoice thank you to pingdom for their support of this show and all of relay fm topic number two also a little bit meta a little bit kind of big picture i, w- I want to talk about streaming services the television critics association summer press tour or as my uh my colleague on the tv talk machine podcast and natalie's colleague at the hollywood mm-hmm. reporter tim goodman calls it the death march with cocktails which is a great title <laughs> uh, it's happening now this is where all the networks and streaming services showcase their forthcoming programming and this year that means not just the likes of cbs and amc and netflix but a couple interesting names youtube premium and and Facebook Watch. Now, YouTube uh, Premium Programming Chief Suzanne Daniels uh, recently talked to them about uh, about that service, $12 a month service. It removes ads, creates member-only content, gives access to YouTube's music streaming. But they're also doing something interesting, which is, you know, they're coming up with a lot more original programming. She is a respected executive. There's a creative team at YouTube Premium that looks like it's uh, a legitimate kind of programming creative team. But, I, and, and Natalie, this is my big question for you. What are the challenges uh, Google has and YouTube Premium has specifically in finding a way through the, like, to split the difference between traditional TV programming with, you know, the, the model that we see on something like Netflix now um, and the sort of YouTube brand promise of, like, YouTubers making things on YouTube. It seems like this is a real challenge where they kind of want to be Netflix, but their brand is YouTube. What do you think is going on with uh, YouTube Premium? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, To set the stage a little bit, I've spent a lot of time in a very frigid ballroom in Beverly Hills Mm -hmm. listening to these executives (laughs) talk about their plans. And it's notable that YouTube is even presenting to this room of television critics to begin with. They only started doing this within the last, you know, year or so. Uh, and it, it signals, uh, to, to people like me, to the critics in the room that they want to be taken seriously as a purveyor of 
premium television content. Now, what exactly that looks like for YouTube is a really interesting question. When they first hired Suzanne Daniels, who had a long history at the WB and MTV, she said that she was focused on creating programming that starred YouTube stars. So the early efforts were things like Scare PewDiePie, which was like kind of a, you know, reality show where he got put into, you know, scary, funny situations and reacted to that. Uh, there was a, uh, a couple of movies starring YouTubers. Uh, that was really kind of the focus for the first year of their programming. And then last year, they went and bought Cobra Kai, right. which is a Karate Kid reboot. And, you know, I think that caused a lot of, you know, eyebrows to raise because I don't think of YouTube as being a platform for the demographic of people who grew up loving Karate Kid. You think of YouTube as being a place for millennials and Gen Zs and, you know, all these kind of young teens. And the idea there was that they really wanted to start to broaden their audience base. And, you know, they, they claimed that they had been successful with the original programming for teens, uh, even though they've never told us how many people actually subscribe to YouTube premium. So it's hard to, to really gauge that. And, and now based on that success with teens, they wanted to try to have a broader audience. And so now we started to see them really start to pick up, uh, kind of more TV-like fare. So they have a Doug Lyman-produced show called um, Impulse. Uh, They have kind of a a sci-fi comedy called Origin coming out soon. It's it's interesting because these programs don't star YouTubers. And uh, although Suzanne told people at, at the TCA presentation that she's still committed to working with YouTube creators. It's clear that they're starting to, you know, kind of work with a very small subset of YouTube creators that they feel like have the audience, have the acting chops, you know, have the ambitions to do something a little bit more TV like. And, you know, they're going to, you know, basically supplement that small group of, of kind of YouTube centric shows with, you know, these much bigger, broader plays. Ultimately, is this is this going to work, do you think? Because it does feel a little bit like they're putting a square peg in a round hole here, right? Which is like, we've got a video thing, we want a premium video strategy, but we have YouTube, which means something different. And it, it seems like it's a difficult line for them to walk. And to be, they want to be Netflix, but they're YouTube, and they don't want to not be YouTube. So what do they do? Yeah, it's a really hard thing for them to figure out. And I don't think that they've come up with a real answer yet. Uh, you know, we don't know a lot about how many people subscribe to YouTube premium. Um, what's interesting about the fact that I'm calling it YouTube premium is that that's a recent rebrand. It was, uh, launched as YouTube red and, you know, as part of this, uh, big launch of YouTube music a few months ago, they announced that they would be rebranding YouTube red as YouTube premium. And it now costs $3 more per month. It's $13 (laughs) a month, which is a pretty high price point when you think about how much people are willing to pay for Netflix and Hulu and other services. Uh, So we don't know how many people are subscribing to this service. It's hard to know. They've claimed that Cobra Kai has been incredibly successful for them. Certainly the one episode that you can watch for free on YouTube has a pretty high view count. I don't know what the exact number is right now, but it, you know, it's, it's definitely one of their, if not their most viewed show to date. And they quickly renewed it for a second season. The question is, is one show enough to get people to continue to subscribe to a platform? And, you know, how do you build a, a slate? 
legislate around one hit that you have. And that's what they're going to have to figure out. But you're right. They they want, they have this Netflix envy, but they're YouTube. And to get people to pay for something that they've gotten for free for a long time, you really have to, you know, have a, a real value proposition. You have to show them that they're going to, you know, it's worth it to spend their money on, on this extra thing. And I think YouTube is still figuring out how to, how to make that case to subscribers. Yeah, and they roll music in there, uh, which is great, except if you already have uh, Spotify or Apple Music or something like that subscription, then it's like, okay, I don't need that, but too bad. I mean, it's a value, I think, if you view it as a bundle, but if you're just trying to get the video, it doesn't seem like much of a value at all. Cicero, what do you think about YouTube being uh, being more Netflixy? So Natalie said a lot. Um, there is a lot to unpack there, but I'll start it all by saying, uh, full disclosure, I am... For these organizations, I am a positive edge case. Um, but, but so I, but I think it's so I think in a vacuum, YouTube premium should work. Like I understand the thought process. I understand what they're going after. And, and with this original programming, it could work because YouTube as a product is ubiquitous. Every smart TV has it. Uh, every application that, you know, every device that you have, uh, you know, that you own has it on there and except for fire tablets. Um, uh, but there is there is a one problem and this is why it won't work because of this one question natalie hmm. is youtube tv and youtube premium the same thing and or can you get do you get access to youtube premium if you have youtube tv that is a good question i hadn't even brought up youtube tv which is youtube skinny bundle yeah live television uh programming my understanding is that if you have YouTube TV, you get access to YouTube's originals. So you don't get premium, but right. there is a channel within YouTube TV where you can, you know, access that original programming, which is really interesting. I mean, that's a higher price point. It's it's much more in line with, you know, the other skinny bundles that are out there. So, you know, you have to really want to watch, you know, the live television as well as get Karate Kid or Cobra Kai or whatever it is. Um, but it is interesting. I, I do, you know, I, I find I find the way that they've they've bundled and kind of separated these different offerings really interesting you know youtube tv is kind of this standalone thing it's it's its own app it's you know you have it's totally different interface than uh you know all of the rest of youtube and you know youtube music is its own app if you look at like the way hulu did it you know hulu is one service and you you go in and you decide how much you want to pay and based on what you want to pay you get different things do you want ads fine you pay a lower price you don't want ads great you can pay a little bit more oh you want live tv too here's this offering for you it's interesting that youtube has opted to do this kind of like you know very specific segmented bundles as opposed to making it one service that you can kind of opt into all these various uh different offerings. And and that is why I don't think it's going to work. It's because the the audience that they're trying to grab and 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 I've heard people speak very positively about Cobra Kai in the wild. 
completely unprompted. Um, I just happened to stumble into several different conversations in uh, in the last several months uh, while Cobra Kai was kind of in the zeitgeist uh, where people were just talking very positively about it. So that part is great. But all of those people that were talking about it were were around my age, were, you know, late Gen Xers, uh, early, early Gen, you know, Gen Y's millennials. So like or really, I guess, Gen Y's. But like it's. It's interesting to see how YouTube has decided to do this kind of all over the place. It's not even like an a la carte service. It's this all over the place type of service where like you've got to ask those questions. And then there's a flow chart for whether or not you actually get a, a particular service. And that's that's the recipe for destruction. They're trying to grab people my age. People my age are trying to cut the cords. They just want a service. They want a service. They, if, you know, if the service had, uh, did a thing before, uh, before they started doing the skinny streaming stuff, then continue doing that service. But as soon as I pay you 40 or 50 bucks a month or 30 bucks a month to start watching live TV, cause I want to cut the cords and get, get out of, uh, time Warner or Comcast or, uh, cable visions pocket, then give me all the other stuff that you do. I, I just want access to, to, to it all. And if you're, if I've got to figure stuff out, then I don't want, I don't want even want to be bothered with it. <laughs> Just leave it alone. The YouTube TV is a really interesting um, opportunity for YouTube. I think the, the market for these skinny bundles is still relatively small. It will certainly grow. So mm. that seems like a longer term bet. Uh, but they've been uh, kind of better than most in terms of how they market. Uh, they, did a huge partnership with Major League Baseball. Uh, they are the uh, jersey sponsor for the new uh, MLS team here in Los Angeles. Uh, they have, you know, been really active about pushing that brand out there, and and I think that as a result, it's got more name recognition than a lot of these in the marketplace right now. So that's an yeah. interesting opportunity for them. Generally, got a good reputation as a good as a good product for a you know an over the top bundle too. So maybe maybe that's. I, I think Google and YouTube are large enough that they have the ability to do these different things and see what works. And they're not afraid. To, obviously, with the rebranding of YouTube Red to YouTube Premium, they're not afraid to change. They're not going to stick with something uh, for you know a year or more if it doesn't work. They're just so maybe maybe in the end, YouTube Premium won't be the primary outlet for this stuff, and it will be YouTube TV, and they'll just sort of like let you pick where you want it. But uh, agreed with Cicero that the complexity kind of uh, makes it uh, a turnoff for, for people if you can't understand where. Where you need to go and what you need to get. It makes it uh, really confusing and it's so easy to just walk away. Before we move on, I wanted to talk also, uh, Natalie, a little bit. Of, I wanted to pick your brain about Facebook Watch and what Facebook yeah. is doing because this seems <laughs> even more awkward than the situation with Google in terms of Facebook coming to the press uh, the press tour uh, with uh, their their uh, content executives and uh, your your uh, your and my colleague <laughs> Tim Goodman wrote a uh, funny uh, reporter's notebook sort of story where he basically said they've got good executives at YouTube. Nobody is taking Facebook seriously. Uh, what you know so. What 
What, tell me, what are they doing? What is going on with Facebook Watch? Yeah, well, so, you know, going back to the TCA environment, it's not an easy room to be in. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, there's no clapping. There's not, you know, so these executives or talent who go up on stage and are used to these rooms where people are fawning over them and are so excited about what they're doing. Like literally last week at Comic-Con, everybody was cheering. And this week, it's just TV critics staring at you. <laughs> exactly. So it's very intimidating. And, you know, most new platforms that come to TCA struggle. Uh, they, they're not used to the format and they aren't used to the environment and it takes them a while. Facebook did kind of the bare minimum. They brought uh, Ricky Van Veen, who is running kind of creative strategy and, and focusing on, you know, these early video efforts. And Fiji Simo, who is a uh, um, head of video product for Facebook, the two of them uh, got up there. They each gave about a five-minute presentation about you know how they're approaching video from kind of a product and content standpoint, and then they sat down to start taking questions. And the first thing that happened was Ricky looked around and was like, "Oh, am I supposed to call on people?" And you know he didn't even know that there was a person passing a microphone around and selecting who was going to ask the question. So already he was a little bit uncomfortable. And then very quickly the questions started to come up about all of the fake news um, on on Facebook. And uh, you know they they were game. They kind of you know addressed it early, and and then questions just continued. Uh, and then at some point, someone asked about the fact that you know Facebook has has started to do some news programming, and they've got a daily show from Fox News. And someone in the room said, "Why are you?" you know, letting Fox News on every single day when these other, you know, um, more reputable to some people, uh, news outlets are, you know, not getting the same treatment. And, and Ricky's response was, well, you know, I don't, I don't make those decisions. So can we move on? Uh, I'd like to talk <laughs> about the original programming that I'm producing and people in the room were just not having it. Um, there were some calls from the audience, just answer the question and, and some things like that. So, it, um, you know, it got off to a bit of a rocky start. Uh, to be fair to him, he really doesn't make those decisions. And the woman who does, Campbell Brown, was not in the room. And she would have been the best person to answer some of those questions. Uh, but that goes back to the fact that uh, when these big tech companies come to Hollywood people don't understand how they work because they like to come into Hollywood and they like to try to do things a little bit differently. And that is confusing to a room full of television critics who expect if you're going to be up there talking for the brand, that you should be able to answer questions on all, kind of all aspects of the brand's programming. Uh, and, and so it kind of, it's, it's very, you know, emblematic of, of kind of the confusion around Facebook watch, uh, as a video product to begin with. Uh, now it's still early for Facebook watch. They launched at end of August last year. So far, what they've done has been a lot of kind of celebrity-driven content. They have a, a talk show with Jada Pinkett Smith. They did a docu-series about Tom Brady. Uh, they have had a few kind of scripted efforts, but it's it's been kind of, you know, early and they're still figuring it out. Uh, now they've actually started to buy some kind of TV-sounding projects. They've got a, a dramedy with Catherine Zeta-Jones called Queen America. Uh, they have a dark comedy uh, starring Elizabeth. Beth Olsen. Uh, so they are starting to take these more strategic bets into more traditional entertainment content. We haven't seen what any of that's going to look like yet. Uh, but there's still a lot of questions about 
what Facebook watches because there's, they've just, they've done so much so far there. They, you know, feels like every few days I get a pitch about a new Facebook watch show. Uh, so until they can kind of really hone in on what they want that brand to be and what people are going to come to Facebook to watch, I think, you know, the jury's still out on whether or not this can really work. I will say, I'll speak as a Major League Baseball fan that their deal with Major League Baseball, which has been going on this year, has definitely improved their uh, people's knowledge of Facebook Watch. But it has been not necessarily the best publicity that you could ask for in the sense that uh, fans of whatever team you are, when when, uh, you have a game that gets put on Facebook Watch, you get this interesting situation where it basically all the announcers for the team say... Well, uh, no TV coverage tomorrow uh, because it's not on traditional TV. It's only on Facebook, and you can watch it for free on Facebook. And they, but they, and they have their own announcers and all of that. But oh, it gosh. is perplexing, and there are all those people who are like, they always, you know, they watch the game on TV, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, the game's on Facebook. I mentioned this to mm-hmm. my wife last week when the Giants <laughs> played a game on Facebook, and she said, "What do you mean it's on Facebook?" And I was like, "Okay, let me explain this." Uh, and so it's like it's a, it's an interesting deal they made. Um, and they get exclusive rights to the TV of that game of you know throughout the year. I think it's one or two games a week. But um, I'm not sure it's making any making anybody happy, right? But it is getting their name out there. So they're they're trying that with live sports too. Well, it's interesting because I, I've been sitting here talking about you know entertainment content, and then you immediately bring up sports. This is, goes back to my point. They've yeah. been they've been trying things in so many different buckets. That, you know, on, on the one hand, sure, they'll get a lot of different, uh, you know, users and, and viewers based on different interests, but it's also made it hard to really pin down what they want this service to be. Do they want it to be live video and, and sports? Do they want it to be scripted programming? Uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit hodgepodge right now. It's interesting, Natalie, after talking about uh, the Facebook's experience at the TCAs, it it makes me kind of dismayed for Facebook Watch because it sounds like Facebook is approaching it like they are a tech company because they are. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, having worked in the tech industry for, you know, two and a half decades, um, one thing that I understand is large tech companies structures in terms of their their management structures are very compartmentalized so like you know you are the architect for these very specific things these four things now there may be two or three other things that are somewhat related and and may make sense that that you'd know about those things and it'd be under your purview but they're under someone else's purview and and you need to interface with them and you really don't know what you know sue doesn't know what pam is doing um with her team uh, until they get to talk and and that's a problem that you have when you're dealing with a different industry entertainment is a different industry even if the medium the delivery mechanism is technical is still within your, you know, within your realm, you still have to approach it as a different industry and they haven't yet. Uh, and that's going to be a really, really difficult, uh, nut for them to crack as they move forward and try to, you know, provide, uh, provide a, a me too type of service because they're really, really late to the game. You're right. I mean, the fact that they have a product executive up on stage and talking to a bunch of television critics is really notable. Um, now, <laughs> right. everything I've 
uh, you know, come to learn is that Fiji Simo really is leading the charge in terms of Facebook's video efforts, because they are thinking about it from a product standpoint first and a content standpoint second. So it makes sense that to Facebook, she would be the right person to come and talk about it. But but yeah, it's not, she's not, you know, the type of executive who normally gets up on stage there. And it's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about them thinking about things from a technology company perspective. It's remarkable when you look at then what Apple is doing. Uh, they went out and hired a couple of incredibly respected television executives to right. run their TV service, uh, that they're, they're building and still haven't, you know, shared a lot of details on. And while sure, you know, they, they've still got, you know, executives like Eddie Q thinking about it from, you know, kind of the Apple perspective, they, they made a statement to Hollywood about what kind of a service they wanted to be based on their hires. And Facebook hasn't done that. Right. The, uh, on the, on that Apple conference call, we'll talk about Apple, uh, right after the next sponsor break. But, uh, I, I really enjoyed the fact that Tim Cook literally said the phrase, we're very excited to work with Oprah on the mm-hmm. conference call. <laughs> that was a moment that was, I wrote that one down. And I was like, Oprah making a note about Oprah coming up on the Apple conference call. Okay. We will talk more about Apple in just a minute, but first let me tell you about our other sponsor this week. It's Linode. Linode gives you access to a suite of powerful hosting options with prices starting at $5 a month, and you can be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in less than a minute. Whether you're just getting started with your first server or deploying a complex system, Linode is the right choice for you. They offer the fastest hardware and network with fantastic customer support behind it all. It's never been easier to launch a Linode cloud server. They guarantee 99.9% uptime for server availability. Once your server is up, they keep it that way. They offer additional storage to blocks storage is now out of beta and is available in their Fremont and Newark data center. Linode is great for tasks like hosting large databases, running a mail server, operating a VPN, running Docker containers, running a podcast network, uh, which I do, running a blog, which I do on a Linode server, on a single Linode server. If you had told me 10 years ago what I would pay to run my entire internet business and do a whole bunch of podcasts and all sorts of other stuff, I would not believe you the, uh, the, uh, the pricing of the Linode uh, server packages is amazing. Oh, and by the way, they're hiring right now. So if you're interested in that, you should go to linode.com slash careers. Fantastic pricing options. I mentioned them just a second ago. The plans start at one gig of RAM for $5 a month. Your own server on the internet, $5 a month. They have high memory plans starting with 16 gigs of RAM as well. And as a listener to download, if you sign up at linode.com slash download FM, you will not only be supporting this show, but you'll get $20 toward any Linode plan, which means on that one gig RAM plan, that's for free months for you to try Linode. And there's a seven-day money-back guarantee, so there's nothing to lose if it doesn't work for you. You can back out, no problem. Go to linode.com slash downloadfm to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit, or just use the promo code downloadfm2018 when you check out. Thank you to Linode for keeping all of my sites up and running and for supporting Download. Uh, Before we get to topic number three, the story you might have missed, something that may have flown under your radar, but is worth mentioning, the tiny, adorable Nintendo NES Classic outsold the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch in June. That's right. Your number one console is a $59, and that's why it outsold them, mini console with 30 classic NES games, including Super Mario Brothers, Metroid, Donkey Kong, Legend of Zelda, and Pac-Man. I guess nostalgia pays also $59 is a pretty nice price. So uh, good job. And also, I got to say, good job, Nintendo, for making enough of them 
for them to sell enough of them. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's been a problem. It has been a little bit of a problem for them, just having them be available. People want them and then they can't get them, which seems like that's not that, not good business. Not good business that way. Anyway, uh, so if you want to go play uh, Donkey Kong, uh, $59 and you can get 29 other games with it. Anyway, moving on. Apple, we did uh, mention them uh, several times before. We should at least dive in a little bit to their earnings call, which again, it's like, you know, money, 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 money. They're probably going to go over a trillion dollars of corporate value at some point here they made 53 had 53 billion in revenue during the quarter um oh yeah they they they, they i this just in they have passed yeah. a trillion in yep. market cap today <laughs> as we're talking amazing anyway it's an all-time record for that quarter it was driven by their growing services business they mentioned oprah that's what did it people that's what right. did it yes. tam cook mentioned oprah, oprah. is the brand ding yeah. trillion um the so so interesting times at apple um what they they uh, tim cook did not was not evasive about what natalie said earlier which is that they hired uh respected television industry executives and have built a whole team full of respected uh, entertainment industry executives but he basically said but we're not comfortable in talking about what we're going to do there yet right but he didn't say oh no 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 and in fact he did say yes we're very excited about working with oprah so uh that's going on uh interesting on the other side of it that the the mac is uh heaven a tough time the mac has taken the the uh the uh the i don't even know what to say it's taken from the ipad the uh the title of the troubled part of apple's product line it shrunk 13 percent year over year uh 3.7 million Macs sold a number that hasn't been seen since 2010 Uh, now one of the things that happened here is that the new macbook pro laptops came out during this quarter last year and did not come out during this quarter this year they came out just after so if you think about the state of the mac at the point where these numbers were coming out essentially there was nothing new um but still it, it, this is a this is a tough one for 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 the fans of the mac like stephen hackett who's here with me now what's going on what's going on with apple and the notebooks and and the mac i mean i think it's it's clear that the company needs to look at their consumer notebook plan you know if you've got uh, a fixed budget of you know 13 or 1400 dollars, it's kind of hard to know which mac notebook to choose you can get something that's called a macbook pro but it's not really a MacBook Pro. You can get the MacBook, which has one port and is tiny, but probably too expensive and definitely too slow for most people. Or you can do, I think, what most people do and buy the $1,000 MacBook Air, which has a processor from about 1992. In it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's just a rough spot. It's got a VGA you know? monitor attached to it, too. It's that's, that's right. That's that comes in a, come, it's, it's very, for the computers, only thin and light, the monitor is very heavy. The you know, the majority of Mac sold are notebooks. The vast majority are, are notebooks. And, you know, the Pro users have the MacBook Pro, and that, as we've talked about on this show and other shows, has been a problematic product since 2016. I believe that 2018 mostly fixes those things uh, and or we're just accepting that we're never going to have real ports again. But that consumer notebook is a really important market for Apple, and they just don't have a – a strong offering there. Their strategy is confusing, and I think it turns a lot of people off. And I, I would hope that if they can address that, that we would start to see this number recover. I'm sure the new MacBook Pros will help, but that consumer notebook is it's a big problem, I think, right now. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Jason, I know you're an Apple guy, um, but I, I've, I've got a question whether or not 
Apple as a as a a computing hardware manufacturer is even relevant in uh, the next decade. It's like people don't have to buy Macs for necessity anymore. Um, there was a time when when creatives, uh, you know, any type any type of content creation had to be done. It was done best on uh, Apple products. And I don't think that time is exists anymore. So like now you have to rely on the cool factor and is buying an Apple cool for someone who turns 23 in 2020 when it was cool for their folks who are, you know, are now approaching 50 or in their 50s. Yeah, I think I think there's a larger question beyond Apple. I think Apple Apple has lost the plot. I think most people would uh, admit on the laptop side where they just kind of made some bad decisions and as Steven said on the consumer uh, half of their laptop line, they don't they don't seem it, it doesn't make sense what they have out there right now and presumably they are moving let's hope they're moving to address that i do agree that the larger issue is uh what what is a computer in 10 years and do yeah. do you need i mean this is this is the struggle so microsoft has spent the last 5 years trying to keep people using windows while also trying to change windows into something that is more of a modern touch based kind of thing and building devices like the surface line in order to try to uh, try to reach them um and apple meanwhile has been trying to find ways to connect the dots between the ipad which is as we found out this week, basically there isn't a tablet market. There's an iPad market, and then there are a bunch of cheap like Fire tablets that people use for right. video and that just to watch video. And that's about it. That's about it in the tablet market. So the iPad is, has been very successful and sells uh, very well. Its sales are sort of flat, but they're just they keep on chugging away. They sell twice as many of them as they sell Max every quarter, about eleven million, I think, every quarter. Um, but so what happens in five or ten years is that's the big mystery. Is you know traditional PCs in general. Um, may not need to exist anymore. And Apple's big advantage there is that people love the iPhone and people love the iPad. Uh, their disadvantage there is that the Mac is not either of those things. And they're you know, they're making attempts to uh, find ways to get them to be connected, but it's going to be a hard transition for them because you know I I think I think it's true that um, the Windows experience has gotten better. And then, and the fact is, there's there's broad choice in terms of Windows hardware for professionals or for regular people. And with Apple, there isn't broad choice. They're only going to do a handful of models. And if they get it wrong, then users get frustrated because they have nowhere else to go other than to Windows, and that's a big conversion for them. And I think the reality is that we would say uh, that in what uh, 2016 with the MacBook Pro, they they got it wrong. And are still trying to live it down and fix it and get to the, whenever their next generation is. And that's put a lot of professional users in the, in the place that you mentioned, Cicero, which is like, mm, you know, do I need to be here? So it, it, at the same time, it's also a tiny little fraction of Apple's business now. <laughs> so there's that, too. They seem to have, Stephen, you know this, like they, they, they've changed how they talk about the Mac in the last year. They seem to have realized that they let it kind of get away from them. But it, it's going to take them a year or two to even kind of get back in the game it seems yeah i think so i mean you can you can look at the the mac pro and see that where they they weren't even going to have one and now they will but it's a year out and i mean i don't think apple would get on stage repeatedly 
and comment on their commitment to the platform and do all the work they're doing to bring iOS apps to the Mac right. if it was a dead platform. And so, you know, I think the the broader conversation is correct that desktops and notebooks, like they're probably not the future, in the, at least in the way that we see them today, especially the way Apple makes them, but they still have a place for now. And I think, I think this will rebound. It's not going to catch the iPad. The, co- the company's an, a phone maker now more than anything by far, if you look at their financials. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm hoping this is just a, a sort of the end of a, a rough couple of years for the Mac and the, it's going to pull out. Two thirds of Apple's business is the iPhone. And then another 15% of it is services, and that's serv- servicing two-thirds of that is servicing people who use the iPhone, right? So it's, right. Yeah. it's you know, the Mac is 10% of Apple's business. And they have decided, it seems like, they do want to uh, get that house in order. But let's not forget that, that uh, you know, Mac OS is 10% of Apple's business. And that's a challenge for them to how, how, they, how they treat it. Um, and it seems like they're treating it now as they can, they can get it to be more iOS by not changing the operating system so much as by adding the uh, kind of app layer to it. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what they do. But uh, interesting how there are so many fundamental existential questions about Apple at the same time that they went over a trillion dollars. But that right. I feel like that's, that's <laughs> Apple's lot, right? Is you're, They're so high profile, they're so visible, and they're so uh, different from so many other companies that um, no matter how successful or unsuccessful they are, everybody's like, huh? Like, what, what are right. they doing? Where are they going? Yeah. Well, and there's, right. I, I think, too, they have a really enthusiastic user base like the mac like the the vo- the voice of the mac community is way bigger than the raw numbers say that it should be but because it's a very vocal group of people a very influential group of people that they get the mac gets more attention than it it probably deserves uh, out in the wider world so that is an interesting phenomenon um you know, maybe Oprah's in there designing the new Mac Pro with them, so I'm sure everything's fine. It's a MacBook. It's great. <laughs> when Tim Cook appears, I told you it was great to work with Oprah. <laughs> right, right. So, ten percent of their business is still one hundred billion dollars. Like that is crazy. Yeah, I mean that, they're, that is they're, crazy. They're, the the Mac the Mac is a very profitable, successful thing, but it's just kind of been flat to flat to a little bit down the last year or so, and and, and the PC market is also down. So. It's a it's tough to be making PCs whether whether you're making Windows PCs or, or Macs. It's uh, yep. well, I mean, if it, you know, like the the at the time of the first iPhone, the very first smartphone, um, the basically, and you know, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. So that was ten years ago. The a mid-range PC then the specs on a mid-range PC then you can now have in your hand on your phone um yeah. you know for 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 you know for all intents and purposes so it's like computing power has gotten smaller and faster and more convenient for more of the world so these big hulking machines don't really serve a necessity outside of very niche things you know video editing uh and and you don't even need to do that on there anymore podcasting you don't really even need to do that on the, uh anymore on those and like gaming you know uh and that's that's about it 
Yeah, it's uh, we're in a very weird transitional period for technology as the smartphone eats the rest of the computer world alive. I've said for a while now that I think in the long run, people are going to look back on the computer industry's history and say it was a prelude to the smartphone. <laughs> but they finally got them small enough. Um, and that may be, uh, well, there'll be more. We'll talk about computer things more on uh, future episodes of download no doubt we're almost ready to be done but before we go we like to give you something we like to end on a positive happy note with something we call a fuzzy puppy update and this one's a little bit different but i think you'll like it according to the american kennel club a new form of yoga is sweeping the nation it's puppy yoga i am not kidding puppy yoga this does not involve training your dog to perform yoga poses although it would be interesting to see my dog do a downward facing human mm-hmm. Um, It is a normal yoga class with puppies running around the room the whole time. Uh, Seriously, they're presumably giving you doggy kisses, occasionally thumping their tails against people who are trying very hard to hold still. Um, They are occasionally incorporated into simple yoga poses, but the point is more to bring joy to the room. It's like a cat cafe, except with dogs and uh, yoga. But uh, dog trainers say it could actually be a really useful way for the puppies to be more confident and also learn to be calm in what they call transitional situations where people are moving between one, you know, one pose and another, one place and another. So they could use it to, uh, to train puppies as well. But it's just adorable. It's puppy yoga. That's all. You know, yeah. based on how my dog reacts when I try to work out in our living room, he just like flops on my yoga mat and doesn't move. I'm not sure this is the best way to get a good workout in. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, once you add puppies to the equation, it may not be your best. Uh, you can't expect a 100% perfect workout, but you do have a puppy. So it's a cute workout. That's at the very exactly least. Right. exactly right. Anyway, that's hot, hot puppy yoga. Uh, <laughs> it depends on if your dog is uh, my dog doesn't like it when it's hot. So she would be very sad. Yeah. Uh, OK, well, that is our fuzzy puppy update and uh, that means we're done cicero holmes where can people find the stuff that you do uh you can find everything that i do if you uh, follow me on twitter at stubby stan uh i've got a lot of stuff going on i do a D stream now. Ooh, and, welcome to the world yeah. of D. We all won an award yesterday for the, the, live, oh, the live play movement where people now nice. play D on the internet instead of just in their basements. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I do a Star Trek podcast and uh, and Spawn on Me podcast. Right. So, so Stubby Stan yeah. on Twitter to get Stubby all that Stan stuff. Stubby Stan on Twitter. Yes. And Natalie, where can people find the stuff you do? Yeah, all my stories publish at thehollywoodreporter.com and in our weekly magazine. And I'm on Twitter at at Nat Jarve, and I tweet out most of my stories. Yep, it's great stuff. And uh, Stephen Hackett, thanks for being here and helping put the show together, as always. Bet if you excuse me, I go. Ha- um, I'm going to try yoga, but with my fish. I'm going to see how that goes. Fish <laughs> yoga. Fish <laughs> yoga. Well, either you're going to get wet, or the fish is going to be unhappy. One of those things. Anyway, thanks to everybody out there for listening to this week's edition of Download. Until next week, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody.